The scripture today comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 33, verses 6 to 9, and it reads, The Lord merely spoke, and the heavens were created. He breathed the word, and all the stars were born. He assigned the seas and its boundaries, and locked the oceans in its vast reservoirs. Let the whole world fear the Lord, and let everyone stand in awe of him. For when he spoke, the world began. It appeared at his command. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Thank you, Derek. Appreciate that. Thank you. God, we lay before you this um, service today, Lord. We ask you to be present here, God. Will you meet us wherever we are? Lord, with whatever deficiencies we come into this space with today, Lord, would you make up the difference, God? We're here for you, Lord, so come, Holy Spirit. Come be made much of Jesus. These are your children, Father. Amen. There's a musical artist that's on repeat in the Bervelde family van, and her name is Ellie Holcomb, and she has a song that's called Don't Forget to Remember. And this song is like an earworm. It just plays through my head every time I hear it. So let's just watch a little bit of this song. Did you know creation is talking to you Wherever you go and whatever you do The earth will keep giving you clue after clue So you won't forget to remember what's true Like every day when the sun rises high The warmth that you feel is God's love by your side Oh, and just like the birds who keep humming their tune Remember God sings songs of joy over you Don't forget to remember you're never alone No matter if you are up high down I like that song. I want to go the whole thing. It's just a fun song. But she asks this question in the song. She says, do you know creation is talking to you? And what's it saying? It's saying God created all of this. And in his sovereignty and in his love for us, he created this world as a home for us as well as himself. He creates this universe as a home for himself, and then he includes us in that home as well. How loving of God to include us in the home that he built for us. Last week, we looked at Genesis 1 as a home story, as a functional home story, as God building this universe as a functional home for himself, but also as a place where he can share a home with humanity. And on day one, he orders this thing called time by separating darkness from night. And then on day two, he orders the weather by separating water above from water below, creating the waters in the sky. On day three, he creates land. And on that land, he allows plants to spring up, which bear food. And so all three of these functions benefit humanity and make the creation a habitable space for humanity to live with God. Then he installs functionaries in those spaces. So on day four, we return to the darkness and the night, and he orders time by placing the sun, moon, and stars. On day five, we return to the sky and the sea where he installs plants, I'm sorry, he installs birds in the sky and fish in the sea. 
And then on day six, we return to the land where he builds animals upon the land, and then he caps off creation with humanity, and they have a special job, a special function of extending the rule of God and reflecting who God is to creation. And so we see God creating this universe as a home for himself, but in his love for us, he creates this little space called earth and makes it habitable for humanity to be able to share that home with God. That's how much he loves us. And then on day seven, we see God resting. Here's what Genesis 2 verses 1 to 3 says. It says, so the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. And so on day seven, God rests, and he does so for two reasons. Number one is he establishes the weekly pattern for us of six days of work, one day of rest. But then also, the seventh day is also move-in day. He's done building the home, and now he moves into it. He takes up residence in this universe home. Last week, I mentioned this show, Tiny House Nation, that Morgan and I sometimes like to watch. And, And the final scenes of Tiny House Nation are always how the family is using their tiny house as a home now. Now that they're living in it, you see scenes of the family saying, oh, it's great, we like to have people over, or sometimes it's a retired couple, and they're like, oh, we love to have our kids here. Or some people will say, now we can travel anywhere we want, and we take our home with us. It's great. We're not tied down anymore. And this is common for all home shows, not just Tiny House Nation. The final scenes are always... How is this home that's been constructed being used now, being lived in by the family? And that's what we get on day seven of the creation narrative is how is this house that God has built being used now as a home, being lived in by God? And today what I want to do is I want to look at the implications of the Genesis 1 creation account as a home story. If we read Genesis 1 as a functional home story for God to share with humans, what does that mean for us? What's the impact upon us of Genesis 1 as a home story? And I think the first way that we're impacted by Genesis 1 as a home story is that we grow in appreciation for who God is. We appreciate God all the more when we read Genesis 1 as a functional home story. Again, Ellie Holcomb asks, did you know creation is talking to you? And one of the things that creation says is this creation ought to drive us to our knees in worship of who God is. Let's look at our scripture reading today that Derek Sogstad read for us. It says, the Lord merely spoke and the heavens were created. He breathed the word and all the stars were born. He assigned the sea its boundaries and locked the oceans in vast reservoirs. Let the whole world fear the Lord and let everyone stand in awe of him. For when he spoke, the world began. It appeared at his command. The Lord merely spoke. I love that verse 6 of Psalm 33 uses this word merely to show that's how powerful God is. It's not a big deal. He just merely said a word, and pow, creation appears. It's not a big deal for him. That's how powerful he is. He talks, and reality obeys. And then 
it says, the heavens were created, which is a reference to day one and four, where God separates darkness from light. And then on day four, he goes back and puts in the sun, moon, and stars. And then verse seven says, he assigned the sea its boundaries and locked the oceans in vast reservoirs. This is a reference to day two, where God separates water below from water above, creating the sky and the water. And then verse eight, let the whole world fear the Lord and let everyone stand in awe of him. This is what creation prompts us to do. It prompts us to say, wow, I've lost words at what God can merely use words to bring about. He merely speaks and reality obeys and it caused me to worship, to go, wow, he's amazing. And the way that I get in this space of just awe-inspired wordlessness is I just look up. Right, I like to look up. So Voyager 1 holds the title of furthest man-made object from the earth. And this thing was launched in 1977 and it was going to explore the solar system. And what we know about the planets and the images we have of the planets are largely from Voyager 1 and 2. But Voyager 1 was launched in 1977, and in 2012, it was declared that Voyager 1 had finally entered the beginnings of interstellar space. So it was finally out of its way, out of the universe. Now, if you really dive deep on the research, there's this theory about this thing called the Oort Cloud, which it's just beginning to enter into, and if you consider that to be part of the solar system, which some scientists do, then it's nowhere near done with the solar system. But... Consensus is by many scientists that Voyager 1 entered interstellar space on 2012. So got the time frame, 1977 launch, leaving the solar system in 2012. That sucker is traveling 17 kilometers per second. At 17 kilometers per second, it took from 1977 to 2012 just to get to the exit of the solar system. You know how fast the top speed of an F-22 is? 0.76 kilometers per second. So this guy, Voyager 1, is going multiple times faster than an F-22 at high speed, at top speed. And it takes, someone do some math for me. What's 1977 to 2012? How many years is that? 35 years. I'm 38. Am I 38? I'm 38. can never remember this. I've said it wrong in various sermons. That's why I check with Morgan now. 38. Take my entire lifetime going 17 kilometers per second just to get out of the solar system. So the nearest star to Earth, not the sun, aside from the sun, the nearest, I'm 37? You're 38? I'm not 37. You're not 38. I'm only 37. <laughs> Yay! I'm younger than I thought. Woohoo! Uh, Woohoo! Still got lots of hair for 37. Yes. All right. Um, uh, grown horizontally, but still got hair. Okay, where was I? The nearest star to Earth that's not the sun. Thank you, Dan. Nearest star to Earth that's not the sun is a star by the name of Alpha Centauri. Sometimes they call it Proxima Centauri, but it's part of the Alpha system of stars. So the Al Alpha Centauri is the nearest star to the Earth that's not the sun. So scientists have done calculations and... and Voyager 1 is not directly pointed at Alpha Centauri, but it will take Voyager 1 between 20,000 and 40,000 years to reach the nearest star to the Earth. That's how long it will take for that Voyager 1 
to get even in the vicinity of the nearest star, traveling 17 kilometers per second. And your mind just goes, like you can't even wrap your mind around the vastness of space. And so when I look up and I start to comprehend all these things, I'm just like, why do you have to make it so big? I mean, when you consider how tiny we are and we're just on this little, it's not even a speck, we're on like an atom of the universe. You know, this earth is like just a, a, a quark or something like that compared to the universe. And so why do you have to make this home so big where we can't even get beyond the moon? I mean, they're talking manned mission to Mars now, but that's like 2040 or maybe even 2060. We can't even get to another planet. So why do you make it so big? Well, I think it's a status symbol. Look at Psalm 19, verse 1. It says, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display His craftsmanship. It's to display His glory. It's because He built this universe as a home for Himself, and His home is a status symbol, and His status is God. So that when we look at His house, we see how massively huge it is that He just creates space to create space. It's like, wow. Whoever created, created that has status and power, and that status and power equals God. Some of you know that uh, my family went on a sort of a family reunion vacation thing with Morgan's side of the family to Jekyll Island, Georgia. And when you delve into the history of Jekyll Island, Georgia, it's fascinating because you find out that in the late 1800s and early 1900s, Jekyll Island was the wintering vacation destination for the richest people in the world. And depending on your view, some people believe that the U.S. Federal Reserve was devised on Jekyll Island. But we won't go too far down that road. You can talk to me later about that. Um, anyway, so you go into the history, and the richest people in the world would converge upon Jekyll Island through the months of January and March. And when all the people that had cottages on that island were there, one-sixth of the world's wealth was concentrated on that island. So when World War I came around, they actually told those people, you need to evacuate this island because if something were to happen to you, it would be catastrophic for the world economy. Anyway, so they build these cottages on the island, right? And I'm putting cottages in quotes here because these cottages are the space of my house several times over, right? And now we got to tour one of the cottages that belonged to J.P. Morgan. So we're touring J.P. Morgan's cottage, and as you would expect, it goes on and on and on. I mean, I've seen cottages that were the size of J.P. Morgan's living room, right? Only his living room would be like the size of a, of, a, of a normal Wisconsin cottage on the lake. And you go, these are cottages. They're for wintering. They only spend three months of the year here at this hunt club that they've set up. Why do they need to build the thing so big? Seems ridiculous. I mean, they got space just to have space. And the answer is, Status symbol. Because when you see J.P. Morgan's cottage, you see wealth, you see power, you see influence. And when we look at God's universe home, we see status, and that status is he's God. Because he has all the power. He has all the sovereignty. He's God. I think that's why he built this universe so big. And so when we look at Genesis 1, the creation narrative as a functional home story, both for God as a temple, but then also for humans on the earth as a sanctuary within that temple. 
when we look at the creation as a home for both God and humans, it helps us appreciate not only that God is sovereign enough to just speak this all into existence, but that he would love us enough to include us in his plan and create for us a habitable little corner of this home that he's built himself. Another way that we're impacted by the creation as a home story account is that we become sharper interpreters. When we read Genesis 1 as a creation narrative, when we read the creation narrative as a home story, both for God and for humans, we become sharper interpreters of Scripture. When you boil Bible study down, there's essentially three steps. There's observation, there's interpretation, and there's application. So you have the O, which stands for observation. You have the I, which stands for interpretation. You have the A, which stands for application. And so if I would say to you, there's essentially three steps to Bible study, you would say, oh yeah? And I'd say, congratulations, you already know all three steps. O-I-A, oh yeah. All right, O-I-A, oh yeah, oh yeah. So we start with the O, which is observation, and that asks, what does it say? Simply, what's on the page here? What does the text say? Then we move to the I, which is interpretation, and we ask, what does it mean? Now that we've found out what's here, what does this text mean? And then lastly, we end with the A, which asks, what does it mean for me? Not to me, what does it mean for me? Because it's saying something to me to do, right? There is authority here that it's speaking to me. Now, those are the three steps. Now, come back with me to the I of Oya. Come back with me to interpretation, and I want to drill down in there for a second. Okay? When we are faithfully interpreting the text and asking, what does it say, we are doing something called exegesis, right? which is a big fancy Bible study word, which means to determine the original meaning of the text. So we're asking, what does this mean to the person who wrote it and to the people who originally received it? We might say the original audience. So before we can say, what does it mean for me? We have to decide, what did it mean for the person who wrote this? And what did it mean for the people who originally received this? For instance, okay, for instance, when we're looking at like 1 Timothy, a Pauline letter. What did this letter mean for both Paul who wrote it, Timothy who received it, and the church that Timothy was pastoring that this letter would have gotten circulated amongst? What did it mean for those people? So we're essentially stepping out of our world and we're stepping back into their world to try to decipher what were they meaning with this text. So let's go to the creation account now, which comes to us from Genesis 1. Now, Genesis 1, I think we'd all agree, does not come to us from 2022 America. Genesis 1 comes to us from a time period and a place called the ancient Near East. Emphasis on the word ancient a long time ago, in a different place and an entirely different culture. And so we have to step out of our world and our culture and go into their world and understand their culture and their context. The ancient Near East had a conception of the universe that was very different from our modern conception of the universe. And they believed in something called a firmament. Now, if you look at this diagram, this black half circle here is the f- representing the firmament And they thought that when you looked up in the sky, you were seeing a clear barrier that held back a store of water. Why is the sky blue? Because we're seeing through a dome into the water store 
that's up in the sky. And you'll see by the diagram that they believed that that was the highest thing, that that water, water store was above the sun, above the moon, above the clouds, above the stars. So that was the highest thing. And then when it rained, God is opening hatches or holes in that barrier so that the water store above us falls down to the earth like rain. You following me so far? This is what they believed. This was a common conception of the universe in the ancient Near East. Now look at Genesis 1.6 out of the ESV. It says, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. That word expanse is the firmament. And so the biblical authors of Genesis are, are picturing God separating water here down on earth from the water store up above by this thing called an expanse or a firmament, by this clear barrier that holds up the water store above the earth. Look at Psalm 29.10. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. What? The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Well, what's the flood? Well, what's the highest thing that we can conceive of? It's the water store that's above the firmament. And they're saying God is so sovereign that he's enthroned even above that flood, above that water store. He's the highest. That's how high he is. He's above the water store. He's the highest. You following me? You following me? I realize we're really into it right now. All right? So are you sticking with me? So what we do to become sharper interpreters is we have to step out of our world and step into the world of the biblical authors and ask, how did they understand this? What did they mean by writing this? How would the people who have received this understood this? Okay. Now, Bill, this is your area of study. I'm just a humble Christian just trying to live my life, follow Jesus, and read my Bible. Fair. Totally fair. Okay. How do you expect me to decipher all this meaning and stuff. I mean, you have time and the resources to be able to do that. Fair, fair. Right? I think the best tool, this is nothing new, for all of you, for anyone who's just trying to understand their Bible, do interpretation, do some exegesis, is a study Bible. A study Bible will help you determine what the authors meant when they wrote it and then how the people would have received it, especially those first pages, those book summaries at the beginning that tell you who wrote it, who the original authors were, what their intention was. So read your, get a study Bible, if you don't have a study Bible, and read your study Bible. And, and Greg Johnson or I are happy to make recommendations if you want to ask. I'll give you one right now. If you really want to get into these issues of context, all right, I'd recommend the Cultural Backgrounds Study Bible put out by Zondervan. And I'd recommend the NIV version. All right, there's, there's different versions of the Bible, but I recommend the NIV cultural background study Bible because they put an emphasis on what was the world like at the time that this text was written and how would people have received this. So how does the creation narrative impact us? We appreciate God more and we become sharper interpreters. Now, it would be absurd for us to look at the Hebrew conception or the ancient Near Eastern conception of the universe and say, there's no water store in the sky. There's no clear barrier holding up the water. We know that, we know that to be true. That's an, un, or that's, a, that's an uncontested, scientific, verifiable fact. Therefore, they're wrong. It would be absurd 
for us to say, we know that not to be true, therefore they're wrong, therefore the Bible is wrong. That's absurd. That's us taking our modern sensibilities and our modern conceptions and imposing them upon an ancient text. And so what does this understanding Genesis 1 as a functional home story for God and humans do for us? How does it impact us? Well, we cut through the scripture versus science dichotomy. All right. It cuts through these arguments that we like to have between scripture and science. Here's what's happening a lot today. As we've created an either or. You either have science or you have scripture. And what's happening is some people who are more science minded will look at the science. They'll say, well, that's verifiable fact. And scripture seems to be at odds with science, and I know science to be true, so I'm walking away from scripture, and then many people, I'm walking away from my faith altogether. Then on the other hand, you have people who are so committed to a, a scientific position, but they know, you know scripture is the authoritative word of God, so we've got to be true to scripture, but I want to hold to this scientific position, so now I'm going to turn myself into pretzels to try to like, harmonize a scientific position with scripture. I'm saying, I, I don't really want to be part of these arguments, or I think we need to rethink being part of these arguments. Because science and scientific inquiry are not the concern of the authors of Genesis 1. We ask scientific questions, but those are not the questions that the biblical authors of Genesis 1 are asking. What the biblical authors of Genesis 1 want to tell us is not how God scientifically constructed the universe or how science plays into the creation of the universe. They don't even have science on their minds. What they want to tell us is how does the universe function as a temple for God and how does it function as a habitable sanctuary for humanity? That's what we see this science versus scripture debate manifested in the questions about the age of the earth. So is the earth millions of years old? Is the earth 6,000 years old? When Genesis 1 talks about a day, is that 24 hours? Is it one rotation of the earth? Is it, is it a long period of time? Was there like lots of years between the days? And the truth is, that's not the concern of Genesis 1 authors. They want to tell us how this functions as a home for God and for us. They want to tell us how this universe is a functional home for God and how God makes it habitable to share with humanity. Something else that I think we need to be aware of with these science versus scripture debates is when we enter into science versus scripture debates, there is a tacit admission on our part that science is the ultimate way of deriving truth and knowledge. When we enter into science versus scripture debates, there's sort of this implicit admission on our parts that, yeah, science is the real, true, best way to know things. And the truth is, is I don't think science is the best way to know things. I think scripture is the best way, but not because of scripture, because it points to the person who is the very definition of truth. Right? It points to Jesus who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not I have truth to give you. 
No, I am it. Truth and me are one and the same. I equal truth. So you want to find truth? You come to me, the person, because I am the very definition of truth. So I don't want to go to science to know things or to derive truth. I want to go to Jesus, who is the very definition of truth. Furthermore, who owns science? Who authored science? Jesus did. He owns it. So cut out the middleman and go to the source. Go to Jesus. Paul tells us in Romans 19, 1, 19 to 20, he says, they know the truth about God because he, had made it, he has made it obvious to us. How has God made his truth obvious to us? Well, ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. How has God made his truth known? Well, he's shown us his truth by his creation. Look up, Paul is saying. When you look up, there's no excuse not to believe in God because you look up and the skies declare the handiwork of God. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about Jesus. And Hebrews chapter 2 quotes Psalm 8, which says, When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them. When I look up, I see the vastness, I see God's handiwork, and I think, how can this sovereign God be so mindful of tiny little humans like me, little ants that he creates a habitable home for on this earth. The universe is so big that who is God to include a tiny, insignificant being like me in that grandiose plan, in that giant plan? So Hebrews 2 quotes Psalm 8, and Psalm 8 says, we look at creation and we're driven to our knees in worship at the handiwork of of God. But who is that God? Who is the God that created all this stuff? Paul says in Romans 1, the truth of God has been made known to them through creation. Who is the truth? We look up and we see creation. We see the truth about God, but who is the truth? Back to Hebrews 2, it says, what we do see now is we see Jesus. You see the thread that the biblical authors are pulling here? And we look at creation and we not only see God, but we see God revealed. We see God revealed as the truth. We see Jesus. When we look up, we see Jesus. Creation drives us to our knees and we see Jesus enthroned. Who's enthroned above the waters? Jesus. Who's sovereign over all of this? Jesus. Who spoke a word and it merely appeared? Jesus. Who restored our humanity when we lessened ourselves in our brokenness and our sin? Jesus. Who brought us back when we left the sanctuary of God, when we left this perfect home that he's created for us because of our sin? It's Jesus. Who restores us? Jesus. Who went to the cross for our sins? Jesus. Who is sovereign over all of the universe? It's Jesus. Whose home is this? It's Jesus. Whose home are we invited into? It's Jesus' home. When we look at creation, we see Jesus. And just in case you don't believe me, here's what Colossians 1, 15 to 17 says, and we'll end on this. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything 
in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and now that he's reigning over creation, he holds all of it together. Thank you, Jesus.